Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. In this episode, we're going to talk about books that have stood the test of time. And we've arbitrarily designated a time period that we're going to be looking at, which is any book that's been published before the year 2000 that still feels relevant today. And we want to explore what it is that makes a book continue to feel as if it's urgent and necessary, what makes a book become really cringy and cliched and awful, and some recommendations from you, recommendations from us about books that are still going strong sometimes after over a hundred years. that science fiction books stay relevant because they've successfully predicted the future, which I wish that we could just wipe that idea completely off everyone's chalkboard. Get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, it's because if that were true, it would mean that basically sci-fi books that predicted, you know, airplanes and trains and cars and all these things that science fiction did predict, that those would be the science fiction books that we'd be still reading now and saying, oh, yes, of course, this is deeply relevant because I drive a car. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's based on a misunderstanding of what science fiction is. I think science fiction is, as many people have pointed out, always about the time in which it was written. And it also, it's about stories that feel like they speak to our relationship with science and technology rather than a particular, like, what if we had wings on our feet? Exactly. And I think when we talk about stories that have stayed relevant, what is meaningful is, do the characters still feel alive to us? Do they still feel like real people and not cliches? Um, do we, can we relate to uh, the way the book is um, representing, as you said, technological change, but also social change? There's a lot of science fiction that's about radical social change. And there's certain patterns in how humans respond to these kinds of changes. And do these books continue to feel like they're reflecting how we're changing? You know, books that kind of help us to get perspective on the upheavals that we're dealing with at the moment automatically feel more relevant than books that feel as though they're speaking to a set of concerns that we don't currently have. Like so much science fiction that was written during the Cold War, which I feel like now, sure, I mean, you could claim like, oh, we're kind of in a new Cold War. I I don't think we're in a Cold War that was like the Cold War that we experienced in the 50s or in the 80s. I think that the stakes are really different. I think the players are playing it differently. The players may be kind of the same, but... Uh, in some cases, it's it's really it's a huge change that's that's gone on that that makes some kind of Cold War era science fiction feel to me like it was written a thousand years ago almost. Um, Greg Bear's novel Eon, which I love, it's an, a fascinating novel. It's so steeped in the Cold War that I feel like it's hard to even relate to some of the issues in it now. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, weirdly, the Cold War feels almost like a simpler time in some ways because it was such a clear cut, you know, there were two economic and social theories that were competing and they were at odds and everybody kind of understood that they were at odds. And it was a very clear antagonism in which a lot of the movements were very murky. A lot of the action was murky, but the the conflict was very clear. Yeah, now I feel like the conflict is super unclear 
Um, so to, to move on to thinking a little bit more about what makes a book relevant, um, one of the things that we, when we were talking about this last week, um, you said, Charlie, uh, you know, does the book make me roll my eyes? Like yeah. that's when you know it's, it's no longer relevant is when you're like, oh God. Yeah. And there are plenty of books which, you know, maybe the themes would still be relevant. Maybe some of the ideas would still be compelling in 2018, but because they're a product of their time and because uh, they're a product of the prejudices or the stylistic quirks and the kind of, you know, preoccupations of the 60s or 70s or 80s, they just don't, you know, have the same power that they, because you just kind of, it's like your immune system kind of rejects these yeah, foreign you're, bodies. you're sort of thrown out of the story because you're like, oh, it's because it becomes so obviously a constructed story. And, um, you know, the other thing is that, I think there's two ways that a novel can remain relevant. Either it's, for all the reasons we've been discussing, it remains relevant because the themes still feel vital or some of the social changes still feel like they're affecting us today. Um, But then there's also that sense of timelessness that you can get, I think, in a lot of what we consider great literature like Shakespeare and, you know, Uh, Chaucer and we say, oh, you know, those are uh, here in the West. We say, you know, those are timeless uh, stories. And I think it's harder for that in science fiction. But, um, for example, uh, Ted Chang's short stories, um, the ones that were published before 2000, (laughs) (laughs) um, there are many wonderful ones after 2000 as well. Those, to me, have a very timeless quality. And I think that's because Ted is great at bringing together a kind of fairy tale feeling with really often very cutting edge science or themes that are very deeply bound up with science. And I think that's why um, his short story, uh, Stories of Your Life, um, became the movie uh, Arrival just now, because I think that that the story felt very vital, very relevant, even though it was written in the 90s. Yeah, and the theme of communication is still one that we're grappling with, trying to understand other people and other perspectives, trying to like grapple with how we deal with the future. But also, I think anything that feels a little bit disconnected from a place in time will automatically get more saying power. I think magical realism often ages really well. Um, I think one thing I wanted to, one point I wanted to make is that I think that sometimes when we talk about the idea of standing the test of time or you know a book that's timeless. It kind of has ingrained in it this idea that certain books are universal because they represent a universal experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be a problematic idea when it basically centers this one perspective of like, you know, the, I don't know, the young white male hero who's like going through, you know, coming of age. Going through like, the hero's journey. And that's like super universal because we can all relate to that, but we can't relate to books that are about people who aren't that guy. And like, I think that, you know, it's important to interrogate what we mean by standing the test of time and whether, you know, it's actually something that, that kind of is meaningful beyond just like a specific perspective that we have decided is universal. Yeah, because there's that idea of the universal story. And then what we were just talking about with um, Stories of Your Life, the Ted Chiang story, um, that's kind of a universal theme, as you said, the theme of trying to communicate. And that's something that can be extracted from the hero's journey or from the white boy's journey or from the you know brown girl's journey or whoever's journey. Um, you know, I think... It is true that many people can relate to having failures in communication, particularly when you're talking with aliens whose consciousness transcends time. We, we can all relate to that. We've all been there. For sure. Um, so that's, that's Tuesday for me. Yeah, that's like that's like every day. Um, 
So let's talk about um, some books that we feel like really did stand the test of time. And I want to start us with the most obvious one, perhaps the first science fiction novel ever written, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which uh, at the time that Shelley wrote it, um, she wasn't able to publish it under her own name because women were not considered to be the sort of people that wrote things like that. Um, eventually, it did get her name on it. Um, and then almost immediately after its publication, it was super popular, it was very controversial, and it started getting made into plays. And throughout her life, Mary Shelley kind of had to either enjoy or endure, depending on your perspective, seeing all of these interpretations, seeing how much people related to it and wanted to retell the story. Uh, one of the very first uh, movies that was made was a Frankenstein movie in the teens. Uh, it's continued to uh, be remade and remade and remade into different movies. Um, Frankenstein shows up in television shows. Um, the book has never gone out of print since it was published in the in the early 19th century. So this is, I mean, pretty much like the classic definition of, of a book that stayed relevant. Um, what do you, I mean, what do you think has kept it relevant? What are some of the themes in it or ideas that you think make it stand the test of time? I mean, there's, it's relevant in the sense that it has this metaphor that we is so versatile that we use for so many things of like science kind of tampering with elemental forces and creating life. And we talk about that constantly, like people who oppose genetically modified foods will say Franken foods. And it, it comes up a lot as like a metaphor for the abuse of science, but it also the central story of the creator and the created, the person who has created an artificial being and the relationship that they have with that being is more relevant now because we actually are starting to do that in a more meaningful way. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people have said, you know, this is kind of a story about about AI. This is about a, a synthetic being, a created being. And, uh, and in this case, the monster is a he, so it's his relationship with his creator. Um, and and so it raises ethical questions that are still really raw and fresh for us now. There's a lot of people working in ethics right this second who are thinking about how are we going to treat artificial creations. Um, there's a great new um, illustrated book out now uh, called Mary's Monster by Lita Judge. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet uh, Lita recently uh, and hear her talk about the book. And one of the things that she she's an artist and a poet, and she's put together a set of linked poems about the process that Mary Shelley went through when she was writing uh, the book. Um, and and Lita's idea is that, uh, first of all, something we don't think about, Mary was a pregnant runaway when she wrote this book. She was a pregnant runaway teenager. She'd run off with her boyfriend um, and had been completely rejected by her family and her, her father um, and was kind of facing this horrible, uncertain future at a time when, you know, pregnant, unmarried women were hardly looked upon with, um, with glee. And so Lita feels like the monster is really Mary, and it's about what it means to be a woman in an era when women are denied education, denied personhood, um, denied an ability to, you know, form their own destiny. Um, and there's all these scenes in the book where the monster is looking in the window while little kids are being taught how to grow up and be adults and is having to learn from the outside. And so I think, again, this still feels relevant for so many people, women or people from other marginalized groups who feel like 
they are living on the outside of that story that we were talking about, the so-called universal story. The universal story is going on in the house. The monster is outside the house going, what the fuck am I going to do? Where's my <laughs> fucking story? Um, and the fact is that we that in a weird way makes it a universal story because we all feel sometimes like that monster um, on the outside of what's acceptable. Um, so I think that we've been able to... Um, reevaluate what Frankenstein means over the years. It can be, uh, you know, it can be about women. It can be about AI. It can be about, um, you know, being a racial minority. Um, it can be about a lot of stuff. Um, and it can be about uh, scientific abuse as well. So, um, so I think that's a great model. And it is very fairy tale like as well. It could, it could happen really anytime. So, so what are some other books that you feel like really stand the test of time? One book that I was rereading quite recently is Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, which came out about 180 years after Frankenstein. But it's, you know, it's another book about tampering with life. And it's about this strange family of like circus performers who experiments on their own children with radiation and chemicals to try and turn them into the ideal circus freaks. And it's really about like being a, a kind of a mutant in a world that objectifies and fetishizes you. And in fact, one of the characters does become a stripper and uses her kind of slightly unusual body to be fetishized. She has a tail. She has a, a pig's tail, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a little tail. It's a little tail. And like, um, there's also this amazingly fascinating thing where one of the characters, Artie, becomes kind of a cult leader and has like this huge kind of following, this fanatical group of people who kind of worship him. And it feels like that cult of personality and that way in which like the kind of like strange and, and socially rejected can become really like magnetic and powerful. That feels really relevant right now, especially while we're living through an era with a lot of cults of personality and kind of like strange figures that kind of become compelling and start dominating the, the popular consciousness in, in really strange ways. It feels like geek love has a lot of relevance in the era of social media because that kind of dynamic of fetishization and kind of control, social control is something that we all think about a lot. Yeah, and as you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, it, it's a little bit like reality TV, where you're sort of manufacturing some something that's a little bit horrible in order to get eyeballs, because that's what they're doing. They're like, how can we create mutant children who are kind of scary? Like Absolutely. Some, some of the kids in the in the book, like they look scary, and that's that's what they have to sell is their scariness. I think Dune uh, is still relevant in some ways. I think the characters may not hold up just because they were always kind of sketched in. They're, they're sort of archetypes, not real humans. But the issue of um, basically environmental apocalypse and exploitation of a planet, uh, a.k.a. a country, for uh, its natural resources, I think is still really relevant. And also just how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, how do you cope with... Um, in this case, you know, millennia of exploitation um, and, and how does the planet kind of break free of that relationship? Um, I still love that. I still love that book. I actually also kind of love all the movies that have been made and, and uh, even though some of them are a little bit cheesy. Um, I think in the same vein, uh, Martian Chronicles, the original collection of short stories uh, from Ray Bradbury uh, kind of stands the test of time. Again, some of the characters may feel a little clunky, uh, but that's it's the same notion of how do you think about colonizing a planet? Uh, what is the history of human colonization efforts on Earth? 
uh, bring to space. Um, and it's just a haunting, fucked up book. Like, I, when I read it as a kid, I just remember... That, I mean, there's images in it that will be with me until I die, just that are so... Um, images of the Martians as they are being exploited and as they are being um, driven out of their own land and what how, how that happens. Um, so what are some other ones, Charlie? I mean, one book that I think about a lot is uh, Nalo Hopkinson's Brown Girl on the Ring, which I came yes. out in the mid-90s. A lot of her work is post-2000, but that book in particular, when I first read it, it was like a bolt of lightning because it's this sort of near-future dystopian Toronto with a lot of like kind of oppressive corporate domination and weird technology but with caribbean spirituality at the center of it and that kind of meeting of you know a non kind of european culture with this kind of near future dystopian setting just felt so uh exciting and fresh and like it still feels like something that we really need and that really kind of illuminates kind of the the tensions of globalization and you know trying to deal with the, the rise of this kind of like homogenized state that's like corporatized in the world. Um, and also another one that people mentioned on our Twitter feed is Slow River by Nicola Griffith, which I'd also been thinking about already, which has this really interesting focus on like water management and, you know, future kind of like, it's almost solar punk before we had solar punk. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, this whole exploration of identity and this like one kind of lesbian relationship at the center of the book which is really messed up and really compelling and beautiful. That book feels like it anticipates so much of what's going on in science fiction right now with kind of like exploring queer identities and exploring like alternative viewpoints of like future energy and and environmental management. And what else have you got? So a book that I'm always trying to get people to read uh, is Kathleen Angunin's Queen City Jazz, which is the first of her uh, nanotech quartet written they were all I think written in the 90s maybe some of the fi- later books are written kind of in the early 2000s um, but it's basically about a smart city and the smart city is built with biotech um, it is constructed around these enormous flowers that are um, being pollinated by super bees that are kind of part of the city infrastructure like the entire city and when I say super bees I mean they're very large um, and the city is is run using technologies that look like things in our natural world, but are in fact completely uh, engineered. And basically, um, you know, the city goes bad, and uh, there's a there's a bug. And the bug is that the city gets stuck in recreating uh, the jazz age. And so people in the city are turned into figures from the jazz age. The city keeps, you know, remolding itself all the time and and bringing jazz clubs back to life. And so it's kind of like, what if your city were programmed with all this pop culture in its memory banks and started making that pop culture become real? And um, some of the novel is just off the charts weird, which is great. It's just, it's, it's Gunan's obsessions. Uh, she's really obsessed with music and jazz, but also the idea of a biotech city, a smart city going wrong. I mean, that feels relevant today still. And I, I think that's, this is a perfect example of something where it was kind of written too soon. It was written before smart cities were a real thing. Um, it was considered very prescient at the time. And then it kind of fell off of people's radar. And I think it's really time for us to rediscover it. Yeah, and actually that makes me think of one book that I wanted to mention, which is Civil Warland in Deep Decline by George Saunders, which, you know, George Saunders is a huge big deal right now because of Lincoln and the Bardo and everything. But to me, his stuff from the 90s, where he was really just 
pioneering these whole like stories about like much as how people are, are trapped in like a jazz age reconfiguration gone out of control in Kathleen Angunin's book, in George Saunders' stories, people are always trapped in these like weird reconstructions of like old things like the Civil War land, or in one of his stories, people are like forced to like reenact cave man life or like prehistoric life as imagined by some park we designer. We say paleolithic in paleolithic. the world of science. Thank okay. you. Paleolithic life. <laughs> cave person. And people are trapped in these, you know, weird kind of giant dioramas or these weird reconstructions in the middle of these oppressive like corporate, you know, entities. And you sort of get the sense that life has become kind of nightmarish and surreal and absurd and Kafka-esque, I think is a word that's often applied. And there's this kind of sense that you're you're under the microscope as well as being trapped in these weird simulations. And that, you know, reality itself is kind of a trap that people are caught in. Hmm, that's so interesting because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about books that stand the test of time, but then these are both books that are sort of critiquing the way that history keeps like creeping back up on us and capturing us and forcing us to reenact things. Because right. what you would hope is that, you know, if you were living in like a perfect timeline where like every generation solves all the problems of the previous generation, you would never be falling back into the horror of a, of a previous problem, right? But the reason why these books stay relevant is because we keep making the same freaking mistakes because humans. Yep. Yeah. So one one book I wanted to uh, mention as like a shout out, um, a book that's for me personally uh, stuck with me for since I was a kid um, is Lawrence Yep's uh, book, Child of the Owl, um, which is actually part of a much uh, bigger cycle that he wrote called the Golden Mountain Chronicles. Lawrence Yep, by the way, is like the most prolific writer ever. He's written like 50 books. They're all uh, YA, middle grade and picture books. Um, Child of the Owl is kind of YA. I, I read it when I was um, you know, probably 10 or 12. And it's about uh, a girl living in San Francisco's Chinatown, which is where Lawrence Yep grew up. And she's struggling with her identity. She's Chinese American, but she feels too American to fit in in Chinatown. She feels too Chinese to fit in uh, outside Chinatown. And she's um, living temporarily with her grandmother. And her grandmother tells her this story about how their family is descended from an owl spirit. And the owl spirit is also kind of a shape-shifting spirit. And so uh, having that kind of connection to a fantasy story, it, it makes the novel feel kind of magic realist, even though it's, it's very realistic. Um, she never develops magic powers, for example. Um, spoiler alert. Um, and this book was published in the 70s, so get with it, people. Um, so... Uh, it, but it's very much about how fantasy stories can help us deal with problems like feeling trapped between two cultures. And I mean, when I was a kid, my father, who came from an immigrant family, um, you know, he really also loved this book. And so we kind of read it together um, and and he kind of shared with me some of his experiences growing up Jewish, uh, surrounded by a bunch of clueless white people um, who weren't always super nice. And we eventually met Lawrence Yep in the late 70s. We saw him do a reading in San Francisco when I was a kid. And so he signed my copy of Child of the Owl. And it was really great. And it was one of my first experiences meeting an author and being able to say like, I love this book. But I think beyond my own personal investment, I think this book and actually a lot of Lawrence Yep's work because he went on to do a ton of science fiction and fantasy work 
deals with questions that people are still struggling with now, questions that kids are still struggling with now, kids who are biracial um, or bicultural and are trying to figure out how they fit in and what their heritage means to them. And, and I think there's that sense when, especially when you're young, that you do feel kind of like a shapeshifter and maybe like a forced shapeshifting. You know, you're constantly being forced to be different things in different places and none of it feels right. And so that just really stuck with me. And I, I really, Lawrence Yep has won like pretty much every award you can win for, um, for children's fiction. And um, I really, he deserves to be in the pantheon of, of pioneers writing about this stuff because he was writing about it in the 70s um, when it was a very, it was early days for being uh, engaged with those issues. Yeah, and you still have that signed book now, don't you? It's sitting right here in front of me on the table, um, and I treasure it a lot. So let's talk about reasons why a book might not age well. Um, and we talked a little bit about like things that seem cliched or that seem like of their time. But I feel like oftentimes if a book is too much commenting on the time when it was written, it tends to fall off. Like, for example, I was just looking at your shelf and you have Logan's Run, which is a book <laughs> that was, you know, written in the 60s. It was like actually a really important book that people now only remember as a movie and a, yeah. a brief, a short-lived but beautiful TV show. But, you know, <laughs> Logan's Run is a book that is about hippies and how those hippies are going to ruin everything. Yeah, it was an anti-hippie book. Um, for sure. It was a it was a hippie fear book. Yeah, the counterculture is kind of dangerous and their their youth obsession is going to destroy everything. And while we can still kind of relate to the idea of like a youth obsessed culture that doesn't value older people because spoiler alert, that continued to be a thing after the sixties. <laughs> still relevant. Still relevant, yeah. At the same time, um a lot of the stuff in that book, when you actually read the book rather than watching the movie, really doesn't doesn't hold up. Because we're no longer living in that era. We don't have, you know, that same preoccupation with hippies. Yeah, it was like the Cold War when we were talking about that before. I yeah. think it's a, a similar kind of thing. Also, one of the things that doesn't hold up well is edginess. Yes. Like, whenever a book comes out and it's supposedly edgy, I pretty much guarantee that in 10 or 15 years, that people are that's going to be the book that makes you roll your eyes. With some exceptions, although, like, for example, we were going to talk about Dahlgren, which people had been bringing up a lot on our right. Twitter feeds. And Dahlgren was edgy in a way, but it's also just, it's got a lot of other things to offer, and it's like a beautifully written kind of complex story that is also edgy. And Samuel Delaney is edgy, not necessarily because of the topics that he that he tackles, although there are some really edgy topics in Dahlgren, but also just the style, his writing style. And I think yeah. that has stood the test of time because experimental writing has become more and more popular in science fiction and fantasy, uh, playing around with time, playing around with perspective. Um, I mean, geez, like the show Westworld, which is such a huge hit, like that's an example of, of playing around with both time and perspective, which is very mainstream and which, you know, things like Dahlgren paved the way for that. Right. But so, for example, one thing that is edgy that I feel like is increasingly not aging well, and this is going to be a controversial thing, but... Controversy. Controversy. Watchmen, uh, the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons graphic novel. I had to reread that recently because I was we, I was taking part in actually a competition where you write fanfic or erotic fanfic about a particular book, and it's the shipwrecked event that happens here in San Francisco. And so I had to reread Watchmen, and I was really struck by how much large chunks of that book feel of their era. Like it was an era where the idea of you know, superheroes being kind of more gritty and, you know, having rape in a story with superheroes felt really edgy in the 80s. Having superheroes who are kind of murderers and not just like 
killing as a last resort, but just killing. Um, things like that felt super edgy in like 1986 or whenever Watchmen came out. And now I feel like we've had decades of that. And a lot of the stuff that was originally shocking in that book now just feels kind of exhausting. feels like it's become cliche. I it, mean, and that's one of the curses of a book becoming super popular mm-hmm. too, is that things that felt incredibly mind-blowing um, are now just... You know, yeah, like, oh, of course the heroes are gritty assholes, you know. But it's, but particularly the rape subplot in Watchmen, I think, doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't age well. Similarly to the way that many people are now not really wanting to read The Killing Joke, also by Ellen yeah. Moore, because it's got that rapey thing happening in it that, that doesn't age well. I feel like, oddly, the part of Watchmen that's about, like, the fear of nuclear holocaust is feeling more relevant, but the way yeah. in which it's framed feels very much of its time. So it feels like a book that increasingly, and this is something that also I think was a challenge in making the movie of Watchmen. It's something that just is of the concerns. It's about the concerns of another era. An edgy novel that I wanted to mention is uh, Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, which came out in kind of the late 70s and was kind of considered the first big vampire novel to make the vampires sort of sympathetic romantic heroes um, she certainly wasn't the first writer to do this, but it was a huge bestseller and it became kind of the popular, it became the story that popularized this this view of vampires. And the thing about that novel is that it was so cutting edge at the time, partly because of this new view of vampires, but partly because it's basically the story of two gay guys living together and having a daughter. And because of the fact that they're vampires, Anne Rice is able to say in the book, and of course has also said um, outside the book, that they're not really gay. They're just vampires. They just have this very erotic relationship that involves like sucking and fluid exchange. Um, And I think that one of the reasons why this novel hasn't held up is because that kind of feeling of being cutting edge um, has really been diluted by the fact that the intervening years have brought us so much uh, representation of actual gay guys. Um, we've had, you know, gay marriage has become legal. Uh, we have, you know, so much more visibility for gay men um, and gay women too. Um, and so now reading the book, it does kind of make you roll your eyes because you're like, wait, aren't these just two gay guys? Like, what's all this dancing around about just like it being blood and all this other stuff? Like, why do we need to have all this window dressing? Like, why don't we just have a story about two gay guys who settle down in Paris and have a daughter? Um, and, and so I think a lot of the angst that drove that story and the angst within that story now just feels kind of extraneous and not, which isn't to say that there aren't people in the world who aren't still struggling with being gay and accepting it. I just think that now kind of the mainstream audience in the United States, like it just, it doesn't feel cutting edge anymore. It just feels kind of like, oh, okay. Like back then you had to tell stories about vampires to have this happen. Now we could, you know, just have them be straight up gay vampires, um, which would be great. Gay people adopt children and it's normal. I know they don't have to like actually go bite a girl. They could just like go go adopt a girl um, Mm -hmm. from a nice, you know, agency that works with vampire couples. Um, Yeah, a nice vampire adoption agency. Yeah. (laughs) So before we finish up, I just wanted to mention a few titles that people mentioned on the Twitter feed. Yeah. So Um, by the way, our Twitter handle is OOAC pod. 
And, and we um, asked people what they thought were some novels that held up, and we got great answers. Yeah, one book that came up a lot was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is one of my favorite books. It's still as funny as ever. It's still just like, although Zaphod Beeblebrox feels a little too real now, one person mentioned. <laughs> uh, a lot of people mentioned Ian M. Banks' culture novels, which basically yes. just are like a huge touchstone for me and always will be. So some of the other ones that got mentioned, um, Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy, uh, which is a classic uh, 1970s feminist novel. Another book that came up was uh, another 70s novel by Joanna Russ called We Who Are About To, um, which is a very uh, acclaimed book by Russ, who is a fantastic writer who often gets forgotten. I was going to mention also her book Picnic on Paradise, which has similar themes to We Who Are About To. Both of them deal with very unprepared groups that wind up crash landing on planets where they have pretty much no hope of ever being rescued. We've been talking about all these books being relevant partly because of their themes, but we haven't really talked about characters that still feel relevant today. That's really true, and I think that a huge part of what makes a book stay on your shelf and in your mind is characters that you can continue to come back to and kind of identify with and bond with on a really deep level. And that's really about characters who feel unique and, you know, vivid. Believable. Believable, yeah. And like not particularly representing an archetype because archetypes get old, but individual, quirky, kind of interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because I... I mean, I spent a lot of time talking earlier about the monster in Frankenstein, who I do feel is a character that stands the test of time. And that's partly because the monster kind of fits some monster archetypes, but also doesn't. I mean, Mary Shelley really overturned a lot of ideas about monsters because this is a sympathetic monster who, um, as I said, like spends a lot of time just wanting to learn stuff and wanting to fit in. Um, And I feel like that's still relevant in the same way that, you know, the main character in Lawrence Yep's novel Child of the Owl, whose name is Casey, um, which is still one of my favorite names ever. And Casey's dealing with the same stuff, like kind of looking in from the outside at mainstream American culture and trying to figure out how do I fit in here? Like, where do I where do I go? And, and she has like a lot of just weird, quirky stuff about her. Like she's not she's not central casting at all. Yeah, and I wanted to finish up by coming up back to one of the books I talked about earlier, Geek Love, and the character of Ollie, who is, you know, a mom, and she's living with her daughter, who doesn't actually know that Ollie is her mother, and her, her daughter is the one who has, like, a little tail that she's showing off at this strip club, and Ollie is trying to protect her daughter and look after her daughter, but she's hiding from her daughter in plain sight, and it's a really moving, twisted, kind of fascinating relationship that still feels, like, incredibly vibrant and emotional today and I feel like that's really what it comes down to is like whether you can still have that like emotional relationship or whether it gets lost in like all the little cliches and like bits of cruft that come into a book over time. There's probably a million books that we didn't mention and if you want to tell us about them you can tweet at us we're at ooacpod on twitter or even better tweet at each other about them recommend them to each other The best thing about books is that you can pass them around and bring them to new generations of people who haven't been exposed to them. So until next time, uh, we'll be back in two weeks. You can find us on all the good places like iTunes and Stitcher and Libsyn. And you can find us on the web at ouropinionsarecorrect.com. You can try to reach us telepathically. We'll see if that works. I'm not sure. We'll probably smell your message. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll smell your message. So you've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, and we'll see you on the other side of the time oh, tunnel. Thanks to Veronica Simonetti with Women's Audio Mission for editing, and also thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Music.